Greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn related show on the planet, the John Campus Show podcast, coming from right here in our delightful little home secret hideout. I am, of course, your host, John Campion, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming, and it's uh, the week leading up to Halloween, so I figured I'd wear a different costume every day this week. Today, I'm obviously a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Joining me in studio, <laughs> Ray Ora. No, you're not. <laughs> Jonathan Boyko's here. What up? Writer, director, producer, Robert Meyer Burnett is here. If you want to be a turtle, you can be a turtle. That's right, because it's my show. And most importantly, you guys <laughs> wow. are here. Thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Uh, here's how it's going to go. We're going to start off by talking about a bunch of uh, predetermined topics that we didn't list off yet. And then at the last part of the show, we're going to take your live comments and questions. Now, we're going to take them from our beloved YouTube channel members. We put up a call a little bit earlier today asking for our channel members to send us some topics. But if you're watching live, you can send in a comment, topic, or question using the Super Chat feature in the live chat and if your uh, common question or topic is appropriate to be read on the show we will read them off and discuss them in the last part of the show all right with all that down guys let's not waste any time and dive right into it shall we we're going to start off with this taylor swift decided to spank martin scorsese Ooh, that's right it's uh it's blowing up all over <laughs> the internet no uh so taylor swift's eras tour concert of course already had its opening weekend made close to a hundred million dollars and uh, we were going to see what kind of a drop-off it had. I thought it would have kind of a significant drop-off. And it had a, it had a decent-sized drop-off, a little over 60%, but not terrible drop-off. And it finished number one in movie theaters at the box office over the brand-new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and it's kind of stark when you take a look at this info. Check this out. So the Taylor Swift concert movie made $31 million this weekend. On a production, remember, this was its second weekend, not its opening weekend. This is its second weekend. On a $15 million budget, Killers of the Flower Moon made $23 million on opening weekend on a $200 million budget. Uh, so obviously, the Martin Scorsese film Killers of the Flower Moon has a little bit of, uh, of work to do. Uh, to get there. Rob, I don't think anybody expected Killers of the Flower Moon to come out at number one this weekend. Uh, they said the projections were going to be between 20 and $25 million, and that's exactly where it came in. But this is a $200 million movie with Martin Scorsese, Academy Award winner, Hall of Fame first balloter, maybe, you know, Mount Rushmore of all-time directors, Robert De Niro, one of the all-time greats. Leonardo DiCaprio, who by the time he retires in 40 years will probably be considered one of the all-time greats. Why do you think that the Taylor Swift Eras Tour concert in its second weekend was able to top Killers of the Flower Moon in its opening weekend? How do you see it? Well, one, I mean, it can have twice as many showings. Yeah, even though, that's, I mean, that's for the weekend, it's, that, that's part of it. Um, but remember, this was still a very big opening for Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. If you go back and you look at their previous outings together. Um, and uh, again, a three and a half hour movie, adult audience. I was surprised actually at how much money it did make. And I read a really interesting article, John, about how the economics of this movie, Apple considers this basically all a marketing expense. All two hundred million TV dollars plus later, uh, yeah, and also because they see it as a this is something that for them, 
they can market it across all of their platforms, phones, tablets, computers, everything. So by making something like this, the economics behind what they're spending and what they get back as a company is very different than what a studio gets back. And what I find really interesting too about this story is that, you know, Taylor Swift, and we don't know the actual numbers yet, but Taylor Swift went to AMC, her people went to AMC, and they have a direct deal with their distributor. Yeah. And so I bet her cut is pretty lucrative. So in, not just the fact that this movie's doing well at the box office based on the budget of, of, of the movie itself, but their split has to be far more lucrative than a studio split. So I would say for Taylor Swift, good on her because, I mean, her business acumen and her people's business acumen is second to none. But as far as this film is concerned, look, I've, I, I think I, I love that Apple allowed Scorsese and DiCaprio to make the movie they wanted to make in the, in the length of time that it is. And for an adult film opening in October – this is it's we'll see where it goes in its second weekend, but it's not a bad thing. It's not Oppenheimer, but it's not bad. I see. I don't know if it's not bad. I mean, like I get the Apple TV part. I mean, you and I have been saying for a couple of years, hey, listen, streamers, you want your movie to blow up on your streaming service? Put it in theaters first. Obviously, Apple believes in that. They, they committed two billion dollars a year recently to doing theatrical release films. But take all that out of it for a second. And, let's, and if we get down just to the bare bones of the movie-making business, a movie that costs $200 million to make with Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Robert De Niro, it doesn't matter they came in second place to Taylor Swift. That's irrelevant. Yeah. It made $23 million on its opening weekend. If this were a DC movie, if this were a Marvel movie, if this were a Star Wars movie, if this were a Harry Potter movie, if this were a Fast and the Furious movie, if this were any movie that costs $200 million to make and it made $23 million opening weekend, we would all be starting the post-mortem on it. We'd all be like, what went wrong? Like, why did nobody go to see this movie? And you brought up, you kind of alluded to it a little bit too, because the problem with this Martin Scorsese movie compared to some of his other ones is this one doesn't have a lot of rewatchability. Um, particularly because of the runtime, like when you're breathing over three and a half hours, that's going to be tough, limited screenings. I don't know that people are going to rush out to sit down in theaters for all close to four hours when you take in trailers to watch the whole movie again. And again, I understand Apple has a wider look at this thing. They're looking at a bigger picture, but I think even Apple has to be looking at this and saying, how did a $200 million movie, the Martin Scorsese, only make $23 million? Do you think it can generate, like, like, I have some skepticism whether it can have legs. Do you think this thing can, can have legs theatrically? No. Mm. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I think that worldwide, if it makes $100 million or $150 million, fine. I mean, but the normal, I would just have to stress, the normal economics don't apply to this, this film. I, and another thing, if they were really worried about who releases a three and a half hour movie and expects it to do banger business at the box office, because you can't even schedule, you're, you're not even losing one screening a day. You're losing two or three at that length because you're talking, you're talking about between time to come into the theater, clean it up and get it running again. You can only get what two or three screenings at most as opposed to five or six. So but we're not talking about it, not being a banger. We're talking about it flopping. Right, because there have been movies that have cost less than two hundred million that have made sixty million opening weekend, and we've declared the right. But I don't lot. think that this movie it would it would not have even been possible 
to make that much money because of the running time. They would have mm. had to put it in 6,000 screens right? to even just, just the amount of time, just the amount of tickets sold because there's, there's, I mean, you're talking seven hours and that's just seven hours of runtime in a day that doesn't even include cleaning the theaters. So that's probably clean the theaters, pre-show trailer runs like, yeah, all that. I mean, four hours at a pop, you know, with Minimum. those trips. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you've got how many, you'd have to put it in three times the screens. And if you did though, it might've made 60 million or 70 million. Well, uh, as we sit around and wait for Martin Scorsese to put out a statement as to why Taylor Swift's concert movie is not cinema, let's move on to this. You know, movie posters. Are you okay, Rob? I'm okay. <laughs> movie posters. Movie posters today, I think most people would agree, are not what they used to be. But why not? Why can't we get these great classic movie posters anymore? And that is the subject of one of today's Mint Mobile hotline questions of the day. Listen, if you guys have a topic or a question you'd like to bring up and you'd like to hear your voice on our show, go ahead and call our Mint Mobile hotline anytime 24-7 at 951 268 Four two five nine, and uh, one of today's questions is specifically about where's the art of the movie poster. Check it out. Hello, John. My name is Jim. I love the show, and much like your love of movie trailers, I love movie posters. However, I am dismayed at the state of movie posters. If you go on Netflix, all the movies have basically been thumbnailed, right? So I'm looking at one right now. It's a picture of Justin Timberlake's face, and it says reptile. What am I supposed to? What am I supposed to make of that? What do you think about this trend and how do you hope that it goes in the future? Bye. All right. Thanks a lot for calling that in, Jim. And yeah, look, I, I think we all would agree that movie posters are not what they used to be. I, I mean, it used to be that a movie poster would come out. And I, I'm talking about like back in the days when I was a kid and like they'd be art. They'd be pieces of art and they're gorgeous and they're beautiful. Now, I remember going into a blockbuster one time and I noticed, I can't remember which movie it was, but I noticed there was a movie and the cover on the DVD case was not the regular movie poster. It was something else. And it obviously didn't look as good. And I remember going up to one of the, either with clerks or one of the managers saying, Hey, why do you, why do you guys not put the regular poster on that? Not realizing it wasn't actually blockbuster that put the posters on them. But I said, you know, why don't you guys have the regular poster on the uh, DVD covers? And they said something to me that I didn't appreciate at the time, but it's taken me a half a lifetime to realize, was this. The attractiveness of the cover of the DVD case does not help sell or rent DVDs. Putting something on the DVD cases, they said to me, that is instantly recognizable is what gets people's attention. That was a lot of years ago that a Blockbuster employee told me that, and now we've seen that that philosophy has creeped out from the secondary poster being on the VHS case or the DVD or the Blu-ray. And now we're talking about they're just straight up making their movie posters that way. Look, somebody once asked the question. I'm sure you guys have heard it a million times. Why are so many posters today just the floating heads? <laughs> the unfortunate truth is because those sell better. I'm not talking about selling copies of the poster. I'm talking about sell the movie better. Posters, while in art, are at the end of the day, a piece of marketing. That's what a movie poster is. It is a piece of marketing. That's the harsh reality of it. 
And the purpose of marketing is to get people to buy or go out and see the movie. So a movie poster is ultimately going to be what accomplishes that better. So I have not seen this movie you're talking about with Justin Timberlake that says Reptile. Don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to tell you this. If I'm scrolling through Netflix and I come across a, a movie poster that says Reptile, it's got like a, a lizard eye on it and a, <laughs> like a, a fire in the background. I am less likely, unfortunately, to click on that than if I come across it on the scroll and see Justin Timberlake and the thing Reptile. Not that I'm the biggest JT fan in the world, but I'm more likely to click on it because of that. And while we may lament, and believe me, I do too, the lost art of the movie poster. Where is Drew Struven when we need him? The reality is these ugly posters work better. And, and that's it. Rob, as somebody who I know appreciates the art of movie posters, oh. when our caller calls in and says, do you notice that posters aren't as good as they used to be? And, and why is that the case? How would you respond? Well, you know, I look, I loved movie posters. I collected movie posters for a long time. Most of my movie poster collection is hanging at the third floor of Previs Company. But I used to collect posters because in a single image, it would mythologize the entire movie itself. If you look at the original Tom Jung poster for Star Wars, everything you need to know with the Luke holding the lightsaber high, Leia at his feet, R2 and 3PO, and it's an incredible image. And... It immediately tells you everything you need to know about the movie that you're going to see. But what happened was movie posters themselves are not necessary anymore. I mean, key art you might see, everything that we're seeing now, uh, you might see in pose, uh, uh, on billboards or something. But now we're getting marketed to online. You know, there isn't like the circular or the movie section of a newspaper that you would open up and they'd have a full page ad in black and white. So our viewer was very astute by saying like Reptile, I believe, is directed by Benicio Del Toro. It's, he directed it. He's right. in it too. But you need a single image that people um, can look at and go, oh, I like Justin Timberlake. Click. They don't even know because now nobody knows what the movie is. To your point, look at this image that uh, that Jonathan has up right now. Seinfeld, four big faces. Witcher, Henry Cavill, front and center. Stranger Things, two of the main characters right yeah. up front. They have to make that instantly You know, to me, what I remember really uh, beginning was in 1983 with Flashdance. The mm -hmm. image on the movie poster and the actual was just Jennifer Beals sitting on the ground with her torn gray sweatshirt yeah. and her leg warmers. And that was it. You know what it said, flash dance, and that was pioneered by Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. They did the same thing the year later. There's the image. That image, everyone knew that image. In 1983, everybody knew what that was. Everyone knew what it meant. Everyone knew what a feeling was after they saw that. And then Simpson <laughs> and Bruckheimer did the same thing the year later with Beverly Hills Cop, where it was just Eddie Murphy sitting on the cover or sitting on the hood of a yeah. red Mercedes yeah. with the gun. And that was it, man. They didn't need posters. And by the way, those were photographs. And suddenly the star cell and movie stars also got to weigh in and say, oh, they didn't used to have control over marketing. There it is. Another poster that Simpson Bruckheimer uh, pioneered. And that changed uh, uh, movie marketing forever because you realize we don't have to pay artists anymore. And the, the stars love it because they got control. They had to sign off on their images. Yeah, because it was shortly after that that things like, you, we talked about this before, we're in a lot of stars' contracts now 
their placement and predominance on the official posters is now part of their contract. It's totally. You know, I think there's like a, one of the best things a poster can do before a movie comes out is, you know, obviously grab your interest. One poster that I know, like where I didn't have to know anything about the movie, where I, it just got me interested in what what the movie was about was the Parasite poster. Where, right. all the, yeah. where their mouths were covered. Mm-hmm. I was like, that looks interesting. What is this about? Yeah. Because you know? it could be anything. I think after a movie's run, a movie has its run, I think you should co- you can come out with all the artsy posters that show everything in the film. But before it, I think it's it's important to get people's attention before a movie comes out. My favorite kind of poster isn't one that's art or a photograph, but in principle is, is a poster that in one frame captures the spirit of the movie. I agree. So when you look at posters today, the posters they use today to market and sell online or whatever, Shawshank Redemption, it's a big Morgan Freeman head, a big, you know, the characters, all that kind of stuff. But I remember that poster that was just of Andy on his knees in the pouring rain with his hands up. And I think the word hope was, was on the thing, but like that one still image captures the entire spirit of the movie, right? I love those. <sighs> However, the ex- oh, there it is. Love that shot. Oh. But nothing is more effective than the crappy cookie cutter things. And, and it sucks because these crappy cookie cutter posters are the ones that actually work a little you, bit better you, for them. You know what another great poster is? Is the Man of Steel where uh, he's handcuffed. Because you're like, oh, that is, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, that, that, game, yeah. that get, got he's, my he's got the soldiers too. around him. He's yeah, yeah. I was like, well, why is he? Getting handcuffed. Yeah, that was that was a good image. That, that was a, a good thing. poster. All right, with that down, guys, let's go on to a not, another Mint Mobile hotline question here, shall we? You know, there's the SAG strike is going on, and you know, a, a lot of great things are trying to get. In some ways, they're being kind of dumb, but they just did something that I consider to be really <laughs> stupid, which is talking about what members of their union can and cannot dress as for Halloween. Uh, check it out. Hey, John, it's Clayton from Dallas, Texas. I was reading on CBS News that sag is asking its members to boycott dressing as certain characters for Halloween, including uh, characters from Barbie or Marvel or uh, Wednesday Addams, because they consider this to be promotion of certain popular TV shows and movies. I'm wondering how far is too far? So just wanted your thoughts on that. Thanks. This, this is too far. <laughs> this is stupid. Uh, look, this this comes to us from Deadline talking about this whole thing that SAG has asked their their members, you know, not to dress as movie certain movie characters for Halloween. He says this. This is their statement. SAG Actra, this is from Deadline, issued Halloween guidance in response to questions from content creators and members about how to support the strike during the festive season. A guild spokesperson said Friday. As the de facto ban on costumes was widely mocked and deride, this was meant to help them avoid promoting struck work. And it is the latest in a series of guidelines that we have issued. Okay, look, let let me throw this out there. I understand why there are certain guidelines for actors during a strike. You do not want to be, like the whole point of a strike is to put pressure on your employers. That's that's the purpose, to put pressure on your employers to try to gain as much advantage as you can to get as beneficial of terms as you can. I get it. 
And that's why they don't want their actors getting on social media and promoting projects that they have or promoting work the studio has done because that lessens the pressure on the studios. Hence, none of the actors for the Marvels can get out there and promote it. And I think we've seen the effect of that on their opening weekend forecast. Dune itself knew that they were going to be in trouble, so they moved the movie entirely. We see the function of that pressure. You don't want to help the studios right now when you're striking against them. I get it. Are you telling me that if Paul Rudd decides to dress as Professor Snape this Halloween and goes out with his kids, that that is lessening the pressure on the studios? That this will help improve the positioning power of the union if Paul Rudd doesn't dress up as Snape for Halloween this year. Of course, Ryan Reynolds had the best response to this. Did you see Ryan Reynolds' yeah. tweet on this? Ryan Reynolds, when the band went out, Ryan Reynolds, who I guess his kids were going to dress up as movie characters, Ryan Reynolds put up on Twitter, I can't wait to yell at my kid that they're a scab during, during Halloween. <laughs> it's like one of the... Ryan Reynolds puts out the best parenting tweets. Just let me say that. But I, you ask, how far is too far? This is too far. This is dumb. Again, I would get it if by somehow dressing up in a Halloween costume was going to alleviate the pressure on the studio. No, it's not. This, this shows to me a little bit of the insight of the micromanagement that's going on in SAG right now and some of the lack of some common sense over there. Uh, but anyway, look, at the end of the day, in 2023, some actors couldn't dress up as the characters they wanted to dress up as as Halloween. Is not going to be a major milestone in the history of Hollywood, pro or con. So in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But Rob, I think this is pretty stupid. It's not going to hurt anybody ultimately, but it is dumb. What do you think about this? I, I think it's monumentally stupid, to be honest. And the question I wanted to know is, okay, well, how far back does that go? Like if I want to dress up, if I'm in SAG and I want to dress up as Humphrey Bogart from Casablanca, well, that's 1941. Is that too old? I mean, what's the cutoff of too characters? Soon, man. Too soon. If, if I want to dress too up soon. as too if soon. I want to dress up as Warren Beatty or something in Bonnie and Clyde, is that too soon? I mean, I, it just seems so ridiculous that this is not what I would want my union concentrating on in terms yeah. of negotiations for a strike. Well, even because uh, all of our culture is promoting yeah. struck companies. Even Melissa Gilbert of uh, Little House on the Prairie fame, she was the president of SAG for a long time. She came out and just blasted that that decision. She's like, really? This, this is what we're we're doing. Like, this makes <laughs> us look so stupid. Yeah, when you got the former president of SAG coming out and blasting what you're doing I, again. Look, do I think this is going to hurt SAG? No. Is this going to hurt anybody? No. So let we'll keep it in context. I just think it's really, really dumb. <laughs> anyway, with that down, guys, we still got a bunch of other stuff we need to talk about. A five-time. Oscar-nominated, one-time Oscar-winning filmmakers talking about how movies today are just too dang long. Also, Jason Blum is saying, hey, that Spawn movie, it's going to happen. I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. And it's going to be edgier than other comic book movies. And Squid Game The Challenge, the new game show based on the hit series, just dropped its first trailer, and it looks freakishly accurate. We're going to talk about all that, but before we do, we're going to take a quick second and thank a couple of sponsors of today's episode of the John Cabot Show podcast. Our friends at Masterclass and the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn. I got them on right now. Vessi. We want to take a moment and thank the sponsor of this video, 
masterclass. Guys, you know, as a small business owner, I am finding myself having to be in negotiations all the time, whether it's with new contractors, vendors, or even agencies that represent our company. Now, I don't like to go into these negotiations unarmed, so I found the perfect class on masterclass, The Art of Negotiation by Chris Voss, a real-life former FBI lead hostage negotiator. Taking this class on masterclass made me feel a lot more equipped and confident going into all these various negotiations I have to do on a regular basis. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. An annual membership starts at just $10 a month, and you get unlimited access to every instructor, thousands of online lessons, exclusive content, insight, and much more. There are over 180 classes to pick from, everything from filmmaking with Martin Scorsese all the way to cooking with the great Gordon Ramsay. In Masterclass, you will find practical lessons that you can apply to your life and work. So guys, get unlimited access to every class. And right now, as a John Campy Show listener, you can get 15% off when you go to masterclass.com slash campia. That's masterclass.com slash campia for 15% off an annual membership. Masterclass.com slash campia. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of this video, Vessi. Now, you guys know I'm not exactly the most fashion conscious guy in the world, but I love a great pair of shoes that are comfortable and I can wear almost anywhere. And growing up in Canadian winters when my feet got wet a lot, waterproof would be nice too. Enter Vessi. They make the claim that they're not just fashionable and super comfortable, they're also waterproof. Now, you guys remember, when I got my first pair of Vessis, I put them to the ultimate waterproof test. I actually stuck my foot in my pool, my feet stayed dry, and the shoes stayed dry. Incredible. And they're the most comfortable pair of shoes I ever owned. Well, that made me want another pair. So I got another pair of Vessis that look great and just equal that world-class comfort that I got from that first pair shoes. They are absolutely my favorite shoes that I've ever owned. Imagine your favorite sneaker style supercharged with waterproof technology and unmatched comfort. No matter how you like to stay active, Vessi has the shoes for you. Trail-ready high tops, effortless slip-ons, and classic court shoes, all with a waterproof twist. They are just as comfortable and stylish as your favorite sneakers, but even more versatile. So guys, if you're anything like me and you want the most comfortable pair of shoes that look great, that you can take out hiking, wear to work, go to the gym, or walk through the water and snow, go to Vessi.com slash Campia and get yourself a pair today. Go to Vessi.com slash Campia and get 15% off your order using the code Campia. And thank you to our friends at Masterclass and Vessi for sponsoring today's episode. All right, guys, with that down... Let's move on here, shall we? We're going to go over to this. You know, Alexander Payne, who made the brilliant movie Sideways, and what's the name of the new one he's got coming out now? The Hang, the Hangovers or the, uh, with uh, Paul Giamatti? I'm oh, the Holdover. The Holdovers. The Holdovers, thank you. I almost called the, the Hangover. No, that's different. That's a very different movie. The Holdovers won an Academy Award, by the way for um, his film, The Descendants, that he was the writer on. He won Best Screenplay for that. Been nominated to be Best Director three different times. Very accomplished filmmaker. Anyway, he was recently doing an interview uh, to promote his upcoming film. And the topic about the length of films came up. And obviously, that's kind of a big topic of conversation right now because Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon is out. And it clocks in at about three and a half hours, which 
is the kind of length where it's not just Ray Ora complaining about it. Yeah, that's right. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of you guys who watch the show have written to me at various times say, yeah, I'm going to have to wait till this one's on streaming and watch it in parts because I'm not going to go to the movie theater for four hours for one movie. I want a double header if I'm going to go to the movie theater for that long. Now, for some people, it's not. But Alexander Payne, the director, he's got a little bit of an issue with that as well. Uh, this comes to us from the folks at The Hollywood Reporter who say the following. Alexander Payne agrees. Some movies today are simply too damn long. The Sideways director was speaking at the Middleburg Film Festival on Saturday to promote his new film, The Holdovers, when he criticized overly long runtimes. You want your movie to be as short as possible, Payne said, according to IndieWire. There are too many damn long movies these days. Payne added that a movie can successfully pull off a long runtime, but if your movie is three and a half hours, at least let it be the shortest possible version of a three and a half hour movie. And he goes on to, to point out movies like Godfather Part Two and a couple of other extremely long movies. Now, look, what he's saying here, I 100% agree with. Look, there are movies that are super long that are the exact right length because they're tight. They've trimmed out all the fat. It's got great pace. It told the story in its timing and it came in at three plus hours. Perfect. That's fine. But so many movies today with extreme long runtimes, I find do not meet all those criteria. Like a, a couple of great examples uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, a movie that you literally just take, could have taken the scissors once, cut off the first half hour of the movie, and it would have been a better film. Martin Scorsese's The Irishman was a very good movie. I like The Irishman very much. But that movie is inexcusably far too long because there are so many scenes in it that were either useless in the sense that they didn't further the story or they were redundant because they used scenes to establish a point to the audience that a previous scene already did. And it's like The Irishman was a great example of a movie that if that movie was like a half hour shorter, it would have been an even better movie. There are some fans, unfortunately, that believe longer equals better. And that is simply not true. On the opposite side of that, there are also movie fans that believe that shorter is better. That is also not true. But I love the way Alexander Payne put it when he says, your movie should be as short as possible. Know the story you want to tell, understand the beats you want to hit and the pace you want to have it. And then once you take all those things into consideration, make it as short as possible while achieving all those things. You will have a tight, crisp, paced out movie that will succeed on every level. And unfortunately, I find today that a lot of filmmakers simply are just too attached to the movie they've shot. I remember once I was watching the director's commentary, Rob. I think I brought this one up before, but for Braveheart. And Mel Gibson, who of course was the director of that film, he made a comment in that director's commentary that has always stuck with me. Mm. He said, cutting footage out of your movie is like killing your own children. He said, because he points out one scene in particular, we spent two months building a set for this one scene. We spent seven days there shooting it with these terrific performances being given in it. And when we were sitting in the editing room, we just realized it's, there, it's a great scene. It's great footage. But the movie works better if we take it out. 
And he said, that was, he said, as a director, that was one of the most painful things you ever had to do. So I get it. You're a filmmaker. You've, you've lived with this scene and this scene and this thing probably for a couple of years. If you, if you has, have envisioned making it and how it's going to put together, then you spend the time storyboarding it, having the sets built, bringing all the crew in, spending days on set and shooting it. And now you're faced with the prospect of cutting it out, but that's what a good director needs to be able to do. Tighten up their films. And I just think that a lot of times, I honestly think one of the criticisms I end up giving a lot of movies when I come out of them is like five out of every 10 of them is like, it could have been a bit shorter. They could have trimmed it up, tightened it up, made the pace better. Because Rob, that's the art, right? This is one of the reasons why I say, I think making great movies and great film is harder than making great television. Because in a movie, you've got to introduce your character, introduce your pres your, your uh, premise, construct the world they're living in, bring your characters into their conflict, process out the conflict and bring it to resolution in 90 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours. A lot easier of a task when you're doing that on television. And it's difficult to do, but it's something they need to do. And I just find too many filmmakers right now are stretching it out too long. And I think in the process, turning some film fans off. I, and again, I agree with him when he says some movies, you do need that runtime. Being quick, sharp, good paced is going to still equal three hours. Perfect. That's great. But I find too many of them don't need to be that long. I don't know. How would you respond to Alexander Payne's comment? Well, I mean, I think in a way, you know, he's, he's kind of right in the sense that movies are kind of a form. You know, if you think about a three-act structure, uh, it really works within the confines of 90 minutes to two hours. And when you, you get longer than that, especially because we're, we're, we're in a world where we have such great TV now with these extended novel, novelized stories that are told over 10 hours, when you, when you are pushing three and a half hours, you wonder, um, why does this have to be this long? I mean... Could you have made a, a shorter version of this story? Because the the paradigm and the kind of the form of the motion picture, dude, I bought a movie on disc. Actually, a friend of mine gave me a movie on disc this weekend that's seven hours long. Oh, my gosh. Is it State and Tango by Bella Tarr. Wow. And I'm like, never seen it. I've only heard about it. It came out in the 90s. And I'm like, can't wait to sit down and watch this banger. <laughs> You know, a, a good example, somebody in the live chat brought it up and I, I missed who said it in the live chat, but one of our viewers pointed out like the latest Mission Impossible, not the best Mission Impossible that they've done. It's a longer movie, but I found that movie to be beautifully paced. I mean, whatever issues I've heard a lot of people bring up, I've never heard pace being no. one of them. It was a pretty tight paste movie. Well, it's celebrating its 40th birthday a couple days ago is The Right Stuff, Philip Kaufman. Right, yes. And The Right Stuff is three hours and 15 minutes long. It feels like a two-hour movie. Yes, 100%. That movie is so entertaining from its opening frames to, I mean, the, the slowest part of the movie is like the last 10 minutes when you're watching this fan dance. It's intercutting this. But, but that movie, it really depends on how, what it is that you're watching. All right, guys. With that down... Let's move on to this, shall we? It seems like a while ago, because it was, over five years ago. Oh, my God. Todd McFarlane came out and <laughs> announced to the world, we're making a new live-action Spawn movie. I'm writing and directing it. Book it. It's going into production. That was five years ago. That was 2018 that he said that. And here we are, five years later, and apparently not really any closer. And along the ways, we had a lot of announcements. Uh, Jamie, I almost said Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Foxx was announced that he was going to be the star in it. 
I think uh, Hawkeye. Uh, uh, why am I freezing on Hawkeye's Jeremy name? Renner. Jer- Jeremy Renner. Jeremy uh, Renner. I believe at some point got announced that he was going to be one of the... Now, that was years ago. I, I don't know whether that's going to still be a piece of the puzzle. He announced that Blumhouse was going to be the production company behind it, which was very exciting. And then a lot of complaining disillusionment coming from Todd McFarlane. It's like, I don't understand why these companies don't want to finance my script because <laughs> you're not a script writer. Um, anyway, so five years later, but now the biggest sign of life we've had in a potential spawn project in well, five years as Jason Blum himself, head of Blumhouse has come out and made a statement about it. This comes from the folks over at variety who said the following. Jason Blum is bringing the Blumhouse edge to the upcoming Spawn film adaptation. During a press line for Blumhouse at New York Comic-Con 2023 per screen rent, Blum teased that Spawn movie is currently in development at his uh, production company. It's going to be edgy and original as compared to other superhero movies, he said. It's going to definitely feel like the Blumhouse version of a superhero movie. Now, that is actually really good to hear. Because I think a lot of people who would be looking forward to a Spawn movie, and I don't know if there are a ton of them anymore, but those who are, what they want to hear is that it's going to kind of feel true to Spawn. And let's face it, if any production company is going to do Spawn, I can only think of two that could possibly do it right. Not that they're going to do it right, but could possibly. One is Blumhouse. And what is James Wan's production company? Atomic Atomic Monster. Atomic Monster. Those, I think, are the only two real companies that I think could maybe do a spawn justice. They can't let Todd McFarlane direct it. I think they're still holding on to that, but I don't think they can let him direct it. But regardless, and he's saying, look, if you take what comic book movies are right now, ours is going to be edgy compared to those. And ours is going to feel original compared to those. And it's definitely going to be a Blumhouse version, which means they're going to lean heavily into the horror aspects of this. Rob, these are all the right things to say. These are all the things I want to hear as somebody who has some mild interest in seeing this. Mm-hmm. I still don't believe this movie's going to happen. I, I mean, I, I kind of would, I kind of want it to, especially with Blumhouse behind it. But I don't know. Does this, these comments by Jason Blum, give you more excitement or even hope that this movie's going to happen? Look, you know, I'm a Jason Blum fan. I like what Blumhouse has done when Lee Wanell does something like The Invisible Man. For eight million bucks and it makes a hundred million. I'm like, you go, Jason Blum, you go, Lee Wanell. You know, uh, M Night the Sham Hammer got to come back and make his films like Split and then Glass over at Blumhouse. Great. Sp- I love what he said about Spawn. I'd love to see a stripped down. The thing is, the character to portray him the way he's portrayed in the comics, coming up from hell and having the cape move the way it's gonna be an not an inexpensive movie. And I don't know if, like you said, if they can get it made, if they can pull it off. If Jason Blum, uh, if he said, we're going to make an Exorcist movie the way we, the Blumhouse would make an Exorcist movie, I would say, great. But then I saw their Exorcist movie. <laughs> and um, I want to stick my head in the ocean and never pull it back out of the water. Um, but I don't know what that was supposed to be, but it wasn't very good enough. Yeah, well, no, <laughs> it, was bad. it didn't sound fun. Didn't uh, no, sound it's, fun. I, you know, it wasn't. But I don't, I, 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 look, I think the Spawn, the first Spawn movie, John, is uniquely terrible in about 10 different ways. Oh, yeah. And it is a perfect example of they couldn't figure out 
the tone, what is this movie supposed to be? The tone was all over the place. And I liked the character. But if they went, if they made the Spawn movie and the tone of it was more like The Crow, I think it could work. But you'd need a really strong director. And Todd McFarlane's supposed to direct it, isn't he? He, he Right from day one, he announced that he was going to write it and direct it. Who has never written or directed a major I mean, Frank Miller. I love Frank Miller, but when he directed The Spirit. Spirit. That's the perfect example, actually, is, is the spirit and what happened there. I think it's a big, big, giant mistake. Look, and, and a lot of people say, well, nobody knows Spawn better than Tom and Frank. True, but that doesn't mean he knows how to make a movie. Right. So, I, I mean, I, get somebody else into direct. Get somebody, comp, maybe somebody else that Blumhouse has worked with before. I mean, they've put out some really good ones. They put out some bad ones, but they put out some good ones. So, let's see what will happen there. But again, at the end of the day, I don't even think this movie is going to happen, but... I believe it a little bit more today than I did yesterday. So we'll see. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to this, shall we? You know, the biggest, I think, phenomena in the history of Netflix was probably Squid Game. I mean, that show came out of nowhere. Kind of a weird version of Battle Royale meets Hunger Games meets whatever. It came out and for some reason, completely captured everyone's imagination. It broke just about every record Netflix has and everybody watched it. And ever since it happened, a lot of questions about what comes next. Well, one of the announcements that came out a little over almost a year and a half ago was that they were doing do a game, a reality game show based on it. It's going to be called Squid Game The Challenge. Well, the first trailer today dropped for Squid Game The Challenge let me tell you, you can't actually do the real Squid Game. Darn it. But my God, they made this feel, at least from the trailer, as authentic to the show that I think you could have possibly made this thing. First of all, set construction, set design, everything, flawless. Like you just saw the reaction of the contestants. Like They're blown away. They actually felt they were entering the world of Squid Game from the horrific barracks that they had to stay in. I mean, I mean, these they're walking to the barracks and this is their reaction. It's crazy. All the costumes designs are great. But I'll tell you what, when they're showing the contestants playing red light, green light, and they're staying there and they're literally getting shot. Like, not contestant 23, you're out. No, they actually have snipers with paint guns. Not real bullets, but paint guns. And you see these people stand there, they're getting shot. And like, oh, and then they're, they're dead. They're out. Or they're walking across the bridge, the game from the show. And all of a sudden the floor opens up and you can see it there. It's yeah, like, that's a long way to drop. That is, I don't care what you got down there getting ready to cushion their fall. I'm sure it's something very safe and I'm sure it's something yeah. very cushy, but I don't care. Like, that's terrifying. That's a good 20, 30 feet. <laughs> yeah. And that sensation of free fall that you're standing there and all of a sudden, whatever it is your feet are on are gone. I, look, this is just a trailer. So I don't know how good this thing's going to be up. It's actually going to be. But the trailer made it look and feel so real, so authentic to the show, to a degree and to a level that I did not think was possible for them to pull off. Now, whether the show itself is able to capture that, we'll find out. And at the end of the day, the winner's going to get over $4 million. $4 million. And what they did really smart 
was they didn't emphasize the games. They emphasized the human drama that happens. And they really went into that to the point that one of the last things in the trailer is the narrator lady comes on, you must pick two players for elimination. And it's like, wait, what? It's almost like we planned this, John. <laughs> it's almost like we had a plan. You had it all ready to go. Like, what? wait, what? And you saw the shock and everything. Like, you just got to pick two people to kill their dream. I mean, there are other reality game shows that have something like this, of course, but it really fed in and it made it feel like this is going to be a game show that actually has drama. So, Rob, I admit... I have not been a big cheerleader for this show. I have not had any excitement for this thing coming out whatsoever. I admit it. This trailer got me on board, and I can't actually wait to see how they pull it off. What did you think about the trailer? Dude, I I, I didn't think they were going to be able to surpass Mr. Beast's Squid Game. <laughs> I remember but, that. But uh, they did. I mean, like you, I watched this trailer. I was very incredulous. I'm like, eh, what are they going to do here? But they, first of all, the games were authentic. I mean, obviously, people aren't dying, but I love the like Hogwarts. Yeah, the <laughs> recreation of everything that they did here. I liked people's reactions in the trailer to, like you said, oh, yeah. seeing the sets. Like that had to be weird, you know, yeah. coming in and setting it all up. And it, this just looked fun to me because I'm like, I now I want to know who wins. Oh, yeah. That's the only thing I want to, you know, any game show survivor, the whole point is you have to like the people. You have to like the people. Otherwise, no one cares. You know, I'll watch F boy Island just to see what happens to the people at the end. <laughs> but, but, but this, this show as a fan of squid game, I'm like, all right, you convinced me. I will watch this show. It's funny. Ray says the same thing about Sex Court TV. Yeah. I just tune in to see That's what happens my, to the people. I That's think, my uh, secret, baby. <laughs> I was looking, when I looked at the trailer here, I think what this is, they have squibs. And then what they have to do is the producers activate their number and their squib will go off. I oh, don't you don't think, think they actually them. get shot with pink guns? No, I think they're squibs. Oh, I hope you're wrong. I, I, I want there to actually be snipers standing along the top, just like in the show, and they shoot them with pink. Because if you hit the wrong I guess there person. would be inherent danger in that. What like if you hit their eye? The eye or, or if you hit the wrong person. You're like, no, no, not you, her. You know what I mean? It's like. That's a lot of money, though, so. That's why I think it's squibs. But, I, you know what? I hate that you're probably right. Yeah. But I hope you're wrong. But I, I want it to be world-class paint gun snipers. Killing people with their thing. That that's what world I wanted class. to be. But I will, yeah, that would be awesome. But yeah, world champion paintball, paint gun uh, champ. Actually, Ray, you saw the trailer. Like, does this give you any interest in watching it? It absolutely does. I'm actually excited for this after watching the trailer. <laughs> I haven't seen Squid Game, but what? Yeah, he has I've, I've seen Squid like Game. one episode, like the first episode, but I haven't. I didn't watch it. I wasn't on that uh, that ride that everyone was taking when they were watching it. So, but this actually. The job of a trailer is to get you interested in in watching something, and I'm definitely interested in this. Just because of the whole time. There's so many people in the beginning. And yeah, it how, looks I like... Mean, how many do they say there are again? What, I mean, it's, it's in the 400, 400? Yeah, there's like 400. It's, it's in the original, right? It's crazy. This, it's, looks, I this mean, looks good. There, there, there are just a few times in, in history where something comes together like this, where it's a phenomenon of a product that people were attracted to, there's a certain strike going on right now. This yeah. content is going to be pulling people to streamers. I think this thing is going to be huge. It is. It is crossed. <laughs> the, the streams have crossed. Do, 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 do we know if this is releasing on a weekly basis? 
Oh, because they need to. Once, you, they need to do it. Oh, they way. better. They, they better. better do it as a week or else they'll just release. kill the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. Because oh. someone's going to watch the whole series in Go one day. Go watch just the last Who episode. Wins just gets out there. I mean, hell, yeah, even Great British Baking Show comes out once a week. It has to be. So. I, honestly, I don't think. Now, did it say in the trailer, dropping like November? What is it? November twenty second or something? Or does it start November twenty second? I because you're right. I think it would be very important for them to to do this week can, by week. Can we assume they're they're not idiots and they're releasing this weekly? Oh can, no, we cannot assume the people at Netflix are not idiots. <laughs> that is not an assumption you can make. Because I'm not even going to look it up. <laughs> well, that would be the thing. I I, I think they would. It's released it all at once. If you knew who won, they would just release that. Somebody would go, oh, this person wins, and it would be done. Yeah, you want to build up the audience week to week. By the way, I want to point out one of our live viewers just wrote, wrote in, and I already lost who it was that said, so my, my apologies. Somebody wrote, why not just make a second season of Squid Game? Well, they are. That's a totally different group of people. Yeah. yeah. It's not like the people who made Squid Game are now making the show, and that took up all their time. No, this is right. a separate group of people making a game show. They're, they're, just, they're doing a second season of Squid Game. They're just trying to keep the fire hot, you know what I mean, yes. with the show, to, to lead into Squid you know, giving them some time. But it's not just keeping the fire hot. This thing's going to be number one on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I guarantee you, this little stupid game show is going to be number one on Netflix. Oh, uh, dude. Everyone's going to watch this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, this is a water and I hope they have the drama, you know, when they're in the barracks, they have to stack up all their furniture and to see who's going to partner up together and what they're going to do. I mean, I'm sure they've cast this. There's going to be breakout stars in this show. Uh, There's going to be heroes and villains and people that you love and get behind, just like in the real squid game. But in the real squid game where people would sneak off to have sex in the bathroom. Well, they have that. Can I, can I R rated. Oh, they will. They just won't film it. Uh, oh, oh, yes, yes they, they will. will. <laughs> About the show, is this, uh, because I didn't watch the show, are all the challenges just athletic challenges or is there mental? No, no, no. Like, there's, there, there's, they're games. So there's, yeah. like, even like the Squid Game itself was a little bit, so there are mental challenges. Good, and stuff good, like good. That That's too. the way yeah. I like it. It's not it looked like athletes. Okay. It looked like there was even like a giant battleship, um, like the game battleship. Oh, nice. And the people stand on it and they're the pegs. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is going to be good, man. It's going to be good. All right, guys, with that down, we're now going to move on and start taking your questions that you guys have fired in. Uh, by the way, if you're watching live, you can still use the Super Chat to send them in. We're going to have it, that open for a little while longer. But before we do, we're going to take another second here to thank another sponsor of today's episode of the John Campus Show podcast, my mobile service provider, and they should be yours. You know, Quark said infamously on Deep Space Nine that the third rule of acquisition is never pay for some pay more for something than you need to. Well, that's why you guys got to switch to Mint Mobile. <laughs> guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video, Mint Mobile. Signing your life away to a big wireless provider is kind of like being trapped on a roller coaster from hell. Sure, it looks like fun at first. They probably even threw in a free phone. But now you can't get off. Month after month of insane bills and unexpected thrills, like overages and surprise fees. If that sounds like your current big wireless plan, it's time to get off the ride with Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just 15 bucks a month. You guys know before I came to Mint Mobile, I was paying triple what I am paying now on the standard big wireless plan, and I will never go back. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped right to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com campia. That's mintmobile.com dot com slash campia cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia 
And thank you to our friends at Mint Mobile for sponsoring this episode of the John Campy Show podcast. All right, guys, with that down, let's get over to your questions here, shall we? Jonathan, let's start off with the Super Chats. What do you got first? All right, Damaris Love says, hey, John Crew, just sending love with a $20 Super Chat. Oh, thank you, Damaris, for supporting us on that level, man. Deeply appreciate that. Thank you. All right, what's next? uh, Nemo Paper says, Regal's MM might be Thanksgiving based on clues. Oh, their mystery movie. Their their Monday Monday mystery movie or whatever. Mm -hmm. Listen, there are a few things that conceptually, as a movie fan, that I love as much as the Monday mystery movie that they do at Regal. However, there's also a few things that have left me as disappointed as the Monday mystery movie because the two times that I have gone, it ended up being some throwaway junkie movie that wasn't really having a lot of people excited about them. Like, and I've been very, very kind of burned by them both times. So I'm probably not going back to the Monday mystery movie, but Thanksgiving would be great. I mean, it's Halloween, uh, the season. I mean, it'd be great if they did. Are you looking forward to Thanksgiving? Dude, I love that trailer. White meat, dark meat, <laughs> all will be carved. Thanksgiving. <laughs> I, I mean, I, that, that, that's the, the, from Grindhouse. Yeah. By yeah. The way. That, so in those, those, that trailer, was hilarious and look Eli Roth he's directing again right he is directing this so I hope it's bloody I hope it's hardcore I hope it's satiristic I I mean I'm actually I don't know why but I have I have a good feeling about this I think it's gonna be good I hope so all right what's next (laughs) AJ Stanton says headed to a massage hope everyone had a great weekend just thought I'd share that I took first in my uh, first ever USPA powerlifting competition on Saturday. I guess, hence the massage. Thank you for what you do, John. That is awesome. Congratulations on that. That is not an easy thing to do. That's not something anybody can go compete in. Congrats on that. Thanks for being here, man. All right, what's next? Frankie C. writes, question for Robert. Uh, There's a sequence in the Eras Tour film that has two songs, but they're done on two different nights, and yet the scene looks a seamless one-shot. How is that done in something like this? Well, look, obviously when you're doing these concerts, it's the same camera angles it's yep. the same, same costume design yep. same blocking it was in and the same it was in the same venue as well same venues and if you want to i mean there was probably a little digital trickery involved as well which but you know you've got your you've got your same camera setups even i mean it's not quite motion control because then the computer is repeating the same camera move but with technology that we have it's not very hard to and do and those are still things. edits you yeah, but, but I mean, because it's between two shots, and so there's no way it's just like a seamless one shot where there's an edit in the single shot. Right. By the Although way, it might be. I mean, he might. Some, it, sometimes they can cover that with a flash or like lights, and it right. looks like it's not, but it's like the flash hits the. Or you know just I mean? digitally do it. Yeah. You know, they did something similar, not exactly the same, but with the Hamilton movie version that they put on Disney Plus, they actually shot it a couple of different times and then like just kind of edited the best pieces of it together. And- yeah, I mean, I'm sure Taylor Swift looked at each. She probably said, OK, I felt good about this. I'm sure she approved every performance oh, yeah. of every song. All right. What's next? Uh, we got Nat Reeds who says happy one year anniversary to Black Adam. <laughs> That's right. We talked about that the other day. <laughs> that it was the one year anniversary yeah. to Black Adam. You know, at the end of the day, Black Adam, fairly or unfairly, may end up being kind of the poster child of the failed experiment that was the DCEU. That it kind of ended off with a movie that they had been working on for 15 years that Dwayne The Rock, the number one, arguably number one movie star in the world at the time was starring in, that put the full force of his 
number one social media presence of any actor celebrity in the world on thing. And yet that movie didn't make $400 million, despite the fact that they even had Henry Cavill in it as Superman and all that kind of stuff. And it's still, I mean, I think that almost kind of represents uh, things for them because while you can look at the rest of the DCU and other than Wonder Woman and uh, Aquaman one, they all kind of underperformed a little bit, but they all made money. I mean, they, they, they put up decent numbers, but Black Adam might be that poster child, unfortunately. You know what the funny thing is, too? I even, I like that movie. I, I, I certainly you know, had some big problems with it, but I liked Black Adam. I don't know what I, you think. I did, too. I mean, I liked it. It was just ordinary. You know, I, I thought it delivered what it was supposed to deliver, but what it was trying to deliver was not exactly shockingly original. Right. But I liked him in it. Yeah, I liked him. I, you in the know, role. I I just I liked his portrayal of the character, but I just felt that the the story it it felt retro. It felt to me like this is a retro superhero story. We're not we're not taking the genre further, and it should have taken the genre further. All right, what's next? Paul Sanchez writes: If this strike goes on much longer, what's the chance the studios start looking at leaving the AMPTP and making individual contracts just to get back to business? No, because they these studios are the AMPTP. They are, yeah. That that's the thing. Producers want out. Some producers. Well, I mean, are. some because some producers are not members of the AMPTP, right? Individual producers saying, "Hey, uh, can you take the word producers out of yeah. your name?" Because the AMPTP, one of those P's is producers. It's like it's technically not producers; it's studios. Yeah. Um, what have you? So. Yeah, there's no point in Warner Brothers getting out of it because they are the AMPTP. They're one of the driving um, uh, policymakers of the AMPTP. I mean, what you could see happen, theoretically, Rob, is you maybe could see the AMPTP kick certain companies out. If, like, Because from all the reports and rumors we're hearing behind the scenes, like the big stick up is... Netflix, mm -hmm. that they're they're one of the biggest problems right now. But I mean, they, their principles align with the other studios, but you might get to a point where they kick them up, but I don't think you're going to see them leaving there, it. There does seem to be some exasperation. Obviously, there's exasperation, but they're meeting tomorrow, and this time the studio uh, executives, meaning Iger and Zaslav, are back. So but we'll see what happens. I have spoken to two different members. Now, two members out of 160,000. Keep that in mind. I've spoken to two different members of SAG who have also kind of floated to me, not that there's any kind of a movement, but maybe actors need an alternative to SAG. Maybe there needs to be another union that represents that makes their own deals with studios and stuff like that. So, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe SAG shouldn't be the only game in town that if you want to be an actor, that's the union you have to belong to. Maybe you can belong to another. I mean, I... I don't, I don't think there's any real movement on that. I just, maybe that's it too. All right, what's next? Uh, we've got uh, Zeus Fleming, new member here from uh, Welland, Ontario. I love Welland, Ontario. Uh, love the show and content, but I need to know what's up with the Peacemaker costume. Oh, it's just, it's the week leading up to Halloween. Every day I'm going to be wearing a different costume this week. And today's just happened to be Peacemaker. That's it. By the way, I love Welland. I would, when I was going to college, I was actually staying, I rented a place in Welland rented. I had this wonderful family that gave me the basement apartment in their place for me to use for free while I was going to school. Incredibly wonderful, wonderful people. Um, and I used to go to the, I would go once in a while to the Seaway Mall. I don't know if that's still in Welland. Actually, Seaway. the Seaway Mall in Welland is where I first saw 
Toy Story. The original Toy Story. All right, what's next? Uh, Al, or A-L, writes, John, considering you dressed up as Peacemaker, <laughs> you wouldn't mind doing the dance. Uh, get the crew to dance with you. Um, so Check just, the opening of the show. Yeah, just skip to the beginning of the show. Yeah, there, there you go. Just go back to the beginning of the show. All right, what do we got up next? All right, we got tips now. Uh, not tips. We got member chats now. Uh, CJ Rebirth says, I don't mind three-hour movies like The Batman, Avatar 2, and Oppenheimer, but movies like The Irishman, Flower Moon just don't look appealing to me. Again, it's not... The runtime is not um, a zero-sum game. Like, it's not all things are equal. There are movies that three hours is completely necessary for to tell a good story with the with good pace and a tight edit, and it comes in at three hours. That's great. You can get two and a half hour movies that still need 20 minutes cut out of it. It, it, it really all depends on the individual film. And it's funny because you mentioned a couple of them. The Batman was like at least close to three hour movie, right? Or was the Batman over three hours? I, I can't remember. No, no, it was close. It was close. It was, it was long, right? And for the most part, I, every scene served its own function. Every scene served uh, a unique function. The pacing always felt good. It felt like the movie was always moving, always moving and brought us to a conclusion. But then others like The Irishman, like I said, I think you, I honestly think Martin Scorsese, as much as I like the movie, he could have taken a scalpel and cut at least 20, 30 minutes out of that movie and you would have had an even better movie. But it all depends from film to film. All right, what's next? Uh, disgraceful, uh, disgrace. Disgraceful end or entertainment. What a glorious weekend it was when Islam knocked out Volkanovsky through, though I give him credit, taking the fight on 11 days notice. Yeah, Alexander Volkanovsky only had 11 days notice. He didn't even have, a, he didn't have a training camp and none of that is to make an excuse. But you know what's funny? Because that fight started and Volk was winning. Uh, he was stuffing Islam's takedown, Makachev's takedowns. He was actually able to put him up against the cage. But listen, this is a great sport. Just like that, the fight can change. Islam fired off a kick that you can tell Volkanovsky thought originally was going to be a body shot, but Islam, to his credit, elevated the kick and went to the top of the head, busted him open and dropped him and, and won the fight just like that. I'll tell you what, he's pound for pound. I mean, Volkanovsky, I, I believe for a long time that Volk is the best pound for pound fighter in the world, but I think you got to maybe give that crown to Islam. Yes, over John Bones, who has lost fights. I would give that to, and I'm not talking about the uh, the DQ fight that he lost. He's lost other fights that judges have handed him on a silver platter. But still, I think uh, I think Islam Makachev. He's he's no Khabib Nurmagomedov yet, but all due respect to him, man, that was insanely good. All right, what's next? Uh, Zandari writes, "What's one movie franchise or standalone mo uh, film that you would want to be turned into a video game? For me, it's John Wick. Thanks, bring on the filthy. Mm -hmm. None, none, because it doesn't matter." However good a movie or TV show is means nothing about how it would be in a video game. So it would all be about, you know, a video game maker, maker making a great with the mechanics, with the gameplay, all that kind of stuff. What title you put on it is kind of irrelevant. I mean, would it be fun to be John Wick and run around and go into the Continental? Sure, but it's a game. So the game comes first. The gameplay comes first. Uh, look, greatest game of all time, I think, is Baldur's Gate 3. And there's no recognizable, I mean, unless you know the lore of Dungeons and Dragons, but they didn't have to make that a Lord of the Rings game for it to be, for it to work. So I, I don't really have one that I think needs to be turned into a what game. What about like Super Mario Brothers? They could turn that into a good game. You know what? With the success of the movie, I think you could probably make yeah. a pretty solid game franchise out of could it. Could be. Yeah, Rob. Could be. <laughs> All right, what's next? Oh, yep. That's funny. Michael Gonzalez's favorite horror movie icon. This is going to sound like a weird pick. Jaws. 
No, I don't think that's a weird pick. I, I, I that's not a weird pick. No. Because I, I know most people are thinking Michael, Freddie, yeah, Jason, yeah, yeah. but I, for me, Jaws. I don't What about you? Dude, the original Frankenstein. Ooh. Since yeah. I was a little kid, Frankenstein, it just, I see that image of, of Boris Karloff, you know, as the monster, and that's it. Um, Michael actually had like his, the Wolfman as his yeah, image. Yeah, there you go. Wolfman. Wolfman's I, a good one. I love. Universal, the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, that's actually, oh, that's, Ray got that's me actually really good. Ray got Such me a good tiki. design. Such the a good design. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yep. All right, what's next? Um, and then we got, let me scroll down here. To Rob's point on marketing online, nowadays people can see trailers to get an idea of the movie or more than images or posters. Back then the posters, uh, the poster was seen more than any trailer, so that needed to communicate the gist of the movie more effectively than That's today. a really good yep. point. Yeah. That is. Yeah, because it it's online. used to be it used to be that the poster was the front line of defense for marketing the film. That was the front line thing. No longer. In the era of YouTube and everything, the front line marketing is now the trailer. And the purpose of the poster is not now to be an artistic expression of the movie, but to be the marketing representation of the movie. So that's why now the poster's main function is for the carousel on the streamers, the cases of the DVDs, and, you know, in the movie theaters, just to remind you, everybody, hey, guys, the new Ryan Gosling film's coming. So the, the purpose of the poster has changed. Thus, the form of the poster has changed a little bit. So I think that's a really good point. Good point. All right. What's next? Uh, Jai CSC says, finished House of Usher. I really enjoyed it, but have to look at it as a supernatural drama series rather than a horror show. I found it difficult to feel the horror hallmarks, tension, fear, dread, when all the central characters are awful people. I mean... But having a show about all awful people can be really good. I mean, Seinfeld, for example, is really basically a show about a couple of pretty bad people. They come across as nice, but by the end of the show, they kind of point out the fact that these are really four horrible and selfish people. I mean, so that's that's all fine, too. I was talking to Rob before the show began. My one problem with The House of Usher, which I think is very good, so don't misinterpret me, is that horror to me lessens a little bit when it all feels inevitable. Like the guy punching holes in his walls looking for the cat. There was no tension because you knew how this ends, right? Without even having seen the show before, you know how this ends. He's going to end up dead. That's it, <laughs> right? When she starts seeing visions of her ex still being alive, there's like no tension because you know how this ends. She's going to die. And, and, and that's the one kind of negative thing about it, but brilliantly acted. The story itself is really compelling. It's, it's just a really good show. I just, I can't feel the horror of it when it all just felt inevitable. That's the, that's the drawback for me. All right, what's next? Uh, TJ writes, Amazon is premiering its live action Fallout series in April. Here's to hoping uh, God of War, Horizon Zero Dawn, and Fallout can follow the path blaze by kind of Twisted Metal, and The Last of Us, yes. Is Fallout the um, Eli Roth one? Um, no. no. Eli Roth is, uh, what's the one Eli Border, Roth? Borderlands. Borderlands. Borderlands, thank you. Eli Roth is doing Borderlands. Yeah, Fallout, I mean, look, for the first time ever, we've got glimpses of hope that video game material can be turned oh. into good on-screen material. We've gone through 20 years of it all sucking. You know, I, I think the the latest Tomb Raider showed potential. I think that wasn't bad. Um, but now we got Last of Us. 
which is just incredible. And maybe they can, but so far Sony's, Sony's doing okay so far with their PlayStation Studio. It looked like it looks like my boy Walton Goggins is in Fallout. So oh, is he? That makes yeah. sense. Oh, I love Walton Goggins. <laughs> that makes sense. All right, what's next? Uh, we got oh, wrong one. Uh, Pro Wrestling Eve. Uh, have having now seen Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock and his horrific English accent, I'm quite sure his American accent as Doctor Strange is uh, revenge on the American audiences, which got me thinking. Uh, when you think of bad accent impressions in movies, what immediately comes to your mind as being the worst or best so bad you laughed? Uh, Honestly, I I didn't even notice the Robert Downey Jr. one in Sherlock. I didn't care. I thought, I, because while somebody who lives in London may point out the the errors in the accent, the one thing I'll say about it is that, okay, maybe it was he was doing certain things wrong, but he was consistent. So the whole, he, like the whole, all the dialogue he gave in that movie was consistently one way. So it kind of, that hides any deficiencies in the accent. So it totally worked for me. The one that always stands out to me, let me tell you the runner-up first. The runner-up is, as much as I love the movie, Kevin Costner and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Because man, that accent was like a pendulum. Sometimes it was there. Sometimes it wasn't there. Sometimes <laughs> it was there. Sometimes it wasn't there. It was like the most inconsistency. And I say this as someone who loves that movie. But the worst, the worst I have ever seen. And fortunately, he wasn't the lead. He was a secondary character. But is the great and beloved Keanu Reeves. Uh-huh. In Bram Stoker's Dracula. 100%, dude. I was going to say that same thing. Were you going to say the same thing? Yep. But, (laughs) sir, it was one of the most atrocious attempts at an actor doing an accent. And I love me good Canadian kid Keanu Reeves. I love him. But, woo, that was some pretty... I was going to ask you what your biggest example uh, was. Dude, that's always the first thing that jumps into my mind. And, you know, it's interesting. There was that period of time where people thought Keanu Reeves couldn't act because of that single performance. Right, yep. And, you know, the first time I saw Keanu Reeves was in the movie River's Edge, where he was in it with Dennis Hopper, and and he played a, co- a, a high school student, and I thought he was quite good in that movie. Um, and I, I've always liked him as a performer, but, man, that performance is so hard. I don't, I, I should love that movie. I don't love that movie. Uh, there's a lot to like in it, but there's a lot to not like, and that performance is top of the heap <laughs> of, and, and, and it makes me, every time I watch it, I feel bad for him. Yeah. You know, it's hard for me to watch only because of that performance. I bet today he would do it much better. I mean, I, he I, should go back in and redub it. Yeah. Just go ahead and redo it. All right. We got time for one more. What's next? Uh, let's see. Carlos Rojas says, what are your thoughts on the ghost goosebumps show? I saw a couple episodes and I thought it was decent. Has anyone I, seen that yet? I have Just, zero interest in the show, Justin despite Long. the fact that one of my favorite guys in the business, Justin Long, who I adore Justin Long, I think he's great. And any even remote inclination I have to watch Goosebumps is because he's in it. I, I honestly don't have any interest in watching the show, so I I, I don't know. Do, have any of the three of you watched any of the new Goosebumps? No, not yet. I, I almost started this weekend. I did not. Right. Again, don't interpret that as me saying that it's bad. I haven't seen it to say it's bad. I'm just saying I don't have any but interest. But isn't like, is it still like young adult? Is it for kids? No idea. I, I guess it is. I'm going to guess, guess what that yeah. brand name it is. Disney Plus. I need some hardcore, man. Come on. Whoa, man. Just palate cleanser whoa, once in a while. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, hardcore horror. Get whoa, your mind whoa, out of the gutter. Whoa. Sex Court TV. All whoa. right, ladies and gentlemen. 
And that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campy Show oh, podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Big special thank you to all you guys who sent in questions, whether you're channel members or use the Super Chat feature. Number one, because you gave us fun things to talk about. But number two, you supported our channel by doing it. And all of us here involved with the show, thank you guys so very much for your support. Don't forget to join us again tomorrow for the next installment of the John Campus Show podcast. I want to thank the people in the room with me, Ray Ora. Whoa, 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 Rob. <laughs> Jonathan Boyko. Hey, Rob, whoa. Hey. Robert Meyer Burnett. <laughs> Hardcore horror. Horror, horror. My name's John Campion. Oh, Until man. next time, my friends. Bye-bye. Hard choice. <laughs> <Rob. laughs> <laughs>